This uh, sermon series is really a part of a larger uh, theme for the entire year, the theme for 2018 and all of our worship, all of our sermons. Come see what love can do. Just come see what love can do. Within that, the sermon series for January is the second greatest love story ever told. Of course, it's the story of the father and the two sons. It's the second greatest love story ever told because the greatest love story ever told is God's love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And today, we're particularly thinking about the younger of the two sons. Uh, I've placed in the sanctuary, as you've noticed, the print of the Rembrandt's famous painting, uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. There's a smaller version out in the lobby, the uh, photo area. I encourage and invite you to come spend some time exploring its depth and its beauty. I was visiting with my son Joel this week about this project, this sermon series. Joel owns an art gallery in Columbia and is an artist, and he was reminding me something that if I had known I'd forgotten, that in the Middle Ages and even into the Renaissance, uh, the early part of the Renaissance, uh, most people did not read or write. Only the elite, small percentage of people read uh, and wrote. And so the way people learned Bible stories were through Bible pictures. And the Medici family, wealthy banking and uh, industry family, and families like them uh, would commission, they were patrons who would commission artists to paint scenes from the Bible to allow those Bible stories to come alive so that people might learn their faith. And I think it's important and helpful for us to realize that the eyes can, uh, can take in not only words but can take in pictures and stories and the imagination is fed through artwork. And just remember that that was a primary way of teaching scripture and evangelizing uh, before people had access to printed word. The other thing that I uh, discovered in my research for this sermon series is that Rembrandt, what you see here, is the product of lots of thought and prayer and work. He, we think, painted this within the last two years of his life. He'd had his own spiritual journey, spiritual struggles. Uh, but they found among his papers lots of sketches and etchings and drafts of this particular painting. And so it seems that he really struggled and uh, agonized over this and found the story very, very powerful and very, very moving. And I wanted to share those thoughts with you to sort of help set the pace, set the stage for what we're going to be talking about this morning and the remaining sermons in this series. Now, before we pray, uh, I would... I would invite us to be particularly attentive to the prayer concern this morning for our sisters and brothers in the fellowship uh, that meets here, the Hispanic Fellowship, Familia Cristiana Internacional. Uh, As you know, recently a ruling came about El Salvadorans returning uh, and no longer being in a protected status. And my contention has always been that the whole immigration question is, first of all, a biblical and spiritual issue of compassion before it's a political issue. So I don't want to get into the politics except to say these are sisters and brothers of ours. I visited with Noah Angel, the pastor, this week, and there are many, many people in his congregation affected by some recent rulings. So we simply ask for God to work in their lives and in policies that there might be compassion and justice even as we protect our own borders. Uh, So remember to pray for these sisters and brothers. That's a scriptural mandate that we pray for the stranger and the alien among us. And certainly 
They're part of our fellowship. They're literally part of our membership. So join me in praying for them in these very, very challenging days. Would you pray with me, please? Our loving God, we pray for our sisters and brothers in the FCI, for Noah as he leads them. We pray that you'll guide the leaders of our nation to policies of justice and security. We pray that in all ways we might be compassionate toward our neighbor and to those who are different from us. We ask God that you bless and provide answers and let them know that we love them. We pray today for those impacted by mudslides, for those impacted by war and famine. We pray more closely at home for our own community, for our upward basketball ministry, and for our church's mission as we invite people to come and see what love can do. We pray for those in our congregation ill and grieving, for those serving in armed forces far away from us, but still a part of us. We pray today that our spiritual hungers might be nourished in you and that our hopes and fears might be dealt with in the powerful cross of Jesus Christ. We pray that as we open our hearts to your word this morning, that you will feed us and show us truth that we've not seen before or truth that we've forgotten. Guide us and open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And now from Luke's Gospel, chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. And we're only going to read through verse 24 because we're focusing this morning on the younger of the two sons. If you're able, would you stand as I read aloud God's word? Luke 15, 11 and following. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion, and he ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The younger son, we know from this 
parable and the teaching style of Jesus that the younger son's rebellion against his earthly father is a, a picture, a mirror of our own rebellion against God. And I think all of the ways of describing the younger son's sin and rebellion, our sin and rebellion against God, can be under the umbrella of the word selfishness. Think about it. Uh, his ingratitude, our ingratitude, that says, God, give me my due, as if God owes us something. That's selfishness. Uh, our rebellion against God that we don't need God, we have a better way to do life. Selfishness, self-centeredness. The whole idea of wastefulness. So selfish. And, and all of the, the ways that, that we cherish our addiction more than we cherish being home with God. Whatever our addiction is, whatever we're hooked on, it all can land under the umbrella of selfishness. But there's another way that selfishness manifests itself. Uh, Selfishness has a social dimension. What the young man did when he rebelled against his father and wasted all that money and time and life and influence not only affected him... It affected his family. Sin is never totally private. It's always other people's business because he took away from the family's estate. While he was gone, somebody else had to do his work. There's a social dimension to our sins. If you notice in the painting by Rembrandt that Rembrandt included characters in the story, in his painting, that are not mentioned in the story. That is to say... We only really have three characters. There are references and allusions to others. We have the father and the two sons. But Rembrandt has these shadowy figures in the background, and there's some disagreement and controversy about who they are and what they stand for. But the idea, perhaps, that Rembrandt understood is that that the rebellion is a social experience as well as a personal one. That when we sin, when we make poor choices... It affects, it has a ripple effect and affects people around us. And usually we're so selfish, we don't even realize that. On Martin Luther King Jr. holiday weekend, it's important for us to remember some of Dr. King's message. That, that, there is a, that there's a social web and fabric uh, and we're all impacted by whether that fabric is strong or weak. And that selfishness has a way of manifesting itself in social structures as injustice. I want what I want and nobody else matters. Or my needs are more important than other people's. Individual sin always manifests itself in social structures as injustice. And so the young man rebelled against God. His selfishness is a mirror of our selfishness and what sin is all about. I want to also deal with the theme that's in this story uh, concerning the younger son, the theme of shame. Shame. Shame was very real in Bible days. And shame is a factor in our own lives when we sin, when we're embarrassed, when we're humiliated, when we we feel that, that horrible load of humiliation. If you look at the Rembrandt painting carefully, it's interesting that we cannot see the young man's face. His back is to us. 
And yet we can, we can gather from the tremendous job that Rembrandt did with, the, with the, the shoulders and the posture that he's deeply ashamed of himself and his behavior. And I want to point out something else. Rembrandt depicted the young man with his head shaved. It was the style in that era for a man's uh, hair to be full. To have a shaved head was to signify that you were a prisoner or a prisoner of war. To shave the head was to shame the person. To shave the head was also to say, you're no different than any other slave or any other prisoner. You're all alike. You're all just the same. You don't matter. You don't have a name. We just shave your head. What's more, while the father is depicted and the older brother is depicted in the painting wearing very, very comfortable clothing and layers of clothing, by by ancient standards, the young man is practically naked. He's in his underwear. That was also a shaming experience for for an adult to be naked or in underwear in public. And so there's this sense of shame that just sort of just fills up the story as we read it and as we look at the picture. It's as if the young man has returned saying, you know, I'm not sure I'm fully human. I've been living with the pigs. Maybe I am a pig. Maybe I'm an animal. Maybe I'm subhuman. Maybe I am not worth anything. Maybe I don't have a name. So full of shame. Maria Wright Stewart was a 19th century teacher and preacher of African descent. Now imagine being a female, black, teacher and preacher in the 19th century. She continued to preach and teach during her life and fought against the notion that she was God's curse. She insisted in her preaching and teaching she was God's gift, not God's curse. And one time she said, the frowns of this world shall never discourage me, nor the smiles of this world flatter me. She was right, you know. The frowns of this world won't discourage me. The smiles of this world won't flatter me. She understood that our value and our sense of worth comes from God. And people do not assign value and worth to us. They can affirm it, but only God can instill us with that sense of dignity and that sense of worth. It's what God thinks about us that matters. It's what God thinks about us that matters. And so there's great drama in this story as the young man deals with his shame. And he pictures for us so beautifully repentance. His repentance is not intellectual. It's not just in his head. Scripture does say he thought to himself, he came to himself and said, you know, I'm going to rehearse this speech. I should go back to my father. I should tell him I'm sorry. But he doesn't just talk about it. His actions show repentance. He turned and he went home. And notice how he took responsibility. He said, I have sinned. Against heaven, that's a euphemism for against God, because Jews were reluctant to speak the name of God. They were in such reverence and fear of that name. 
So to say, I've sinned against heaven was a euphemism for I've sinned against God. I've sinned against my earthly father. I have sinned. Notice, he didn't blame the pigs. He didn't blame his father for the way he was raised. He didn't blame his brother, which in my book could have been blamed for some of it, right? He didn't blame the town he was raised in. He didn't blame the famine in the land, the the downturn economically. He simply took responsibility, confessed his sin, and says, I have sinned, and he came back home. Now, let's camp for a moment around the theology of repentance. Do you realize that in this transaction of grace in which God forgives us for our sins and comes into our lives and makes us children in His family, that transaction of forgiveness when our hearts are cleansed and we are adopted into the family, do you realize that the only thing you and I bring to that transaction of grace is our repentance, our brokenness. It's not a a two-way deal. It's not meeting God halfway. It's not impressing God with our works. The only gift we bring Him is our broken spirits, our acknowledgement that we need His forgiveness and love. It's totally grace. And there is that hint that somehow the son understands that because with all of his shame, with all of his embarrassment, with all of his guilt, he still calls his dad father. Father, I have sinned. He doesn't say sir or mister or owner of the ranch. He says father. He holds out that glimmer of hope. And the really, really old Bible commentary, the Matthew Henry commentary, has a beautiful description of this moment. It says that the father was looking for him, hugged him and kissed him. And Matthew Henry says the prodigal son on his way home was met by eyes of mercy, the father saw him, arms of mercy, the father hugged him, and lips of mercy, the father kissed him. There was mercy to meet his repentance. Several years ago, there was a, uh, a book written about a Lutheran chaplain in the army who was chosen, a, a U.S. chaplain, U.S. Army chaplain, who was chosen because he spoke fluent German to be the chaplain to the Nuremberg trial defendants, those accused of war crimes in Nazi Nazi Germany. He was chosen to minister and share God's love with these who were sentenced to die for war atrocities. And he kept talking to them about the love of Jesus Christ the forgiveness that's available in Jesus Christ. And all through his ministry, after, after that Nuremberg experience ended, he was known for his compassion. And, and one of his family members said after he died, they said, Dad's favorite saying was, God loves you, 
so much more than you know. Not just that God loves you, but God loves you so much more than you know. It's that mercy of the Father that doesn't just meet the Son, but overwhelms the Son. But the Son was not only forgiven, He was also restored. Did you notice that in the verses? The Father says, bring the robe, not just forgiven. The Son was willing to come back as a slave. Not just forgiven, the Father says, we want him restored to full sonship. Bring the robe. The Greek reads, the special one, the one you know what I mean. Bring that robe. And bring the ring, the family signet, the family crest. This was a family of some financial means. Uh, He's restored to full sonship. And then, bring the sandals. Look with me. Only slaves and the poorest were barefooted. Only the wealthy could wear shoes. One sandal on, the other one off, probably broken. And Henry Nouwen points out, over on the left foot, the bottom of the left foot, there's a scar. His shoes are worn out. This past week I was at Buckner Center Uh, in Dallas, Texas, for a Baptist World Alliance meeting. And we had the privilege of going to work at Buckner Center and packaging shoes. They they have sent three million pair of shoes all over the world to orphans. And we had the privilege of working for about an hour, uh, packing shoes and writing notes of love to children all over the world who will be receiving shoes. And they said that when children live in orphanages throughout the world, they share clothing. Clothing is laundered and they never get the same clothing back. But the only thing they own is a pair of shoes. And the father says, bring him some decent sandals. He's not a slave. He's a child of mine. He gets the robe. He gets the ring. He gets the sandals. He is in full sonship even though he asks to be a slave. Do you see how scripture all fits together thematically. I want to show you this verse from Romans, the Apostle Paul writing to the Romans in 8, 15 through 17. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. There's that slavery word. But you have received the spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Wow. God doesn't just forgive us. He restores us to full family status. Joint heirs with Christ. Everything Christ inherits, we inherit. But there was one other thing the Father did to restore him. He said, let's have a party. As Eugene Peterson translates it, let's have a beef barbecue. Remember, sin is not only private, it's social. It affects the web of relationships. So if sin affects webs of relationships, then so does forgiveness and restoration. It's only right that the family and the friends should party because his restoration is everybody's business. People coming to Jesus is everybody's business. 
And if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, if you're going to live for Him after coming home, you can't do it by yourself. You need the church. You need the party. We need each other. And the call of Jesus in this story is the call for all of us to come home. We may already be a follower of Christ, but we've drifted. We don't make Jesus our home. We just check in once in a while. The call is to those who've never trusted Jesus Christ, who've been trying to go it alone and are miserable. Come home to Jesus Christ. Because remember, God loves you so much more than you know. Let's pray together. As we bow for just a few moments, I'm going to specifically invite you, if you've never told Jesus you want to be his follower, and this morning you're sensing that you need his forgiveness and restoration, you'd like to be done with shame and and, and being distant from God. The first step is for you to admit your need, to take responsibility, and to say that you're willing to turn, to repent, ready to commit to Jesus. In your own words, with heads bowed, just breathing a silent prayer, I want to loan you some words that you can make your own. And you can say, God, I have rebelled. I choose to return. Forgive me. Jesus, come into my life. I will follow you. Jesus, help me. Jesus, save me. And if you've prayed that prayer this morning, we'll have a response time now that you may come and visit with us about that or you may visit with one of the pastors, myself, after the service or talk to someone today who's already a follower of Jesus, and let them help you in this beginning. God, we ask that you help all of us to come home, help all of us to find a deeper walk with you. Through Christ we pray. Amen.